So just a word of explanation before um, I begin preaching. This week and last week we had the same first reading which is from Genesis chapter 15 and it's, uh, it's the call of, of Abram. Um, and I've included this uh, passage both of the times uh, thinking that I would get around to preaching on it. You know, you, you pick the readings on Monday and then a lot happens during the course of the week and things don't always come out the way that you want it to. But I, w- I want to mention this one, uh, this one point about uh, this passage. Verse 6 of chapter 15 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it, believing him, counted it to Abram as righteousness. Okay. This is a very, very important passage for us as Christians to know because it indicates to us that even in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Okay? Don't make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, under the Old Testament we were saved by works and then Jesus came along and we didn't have to do works anymore. We've always been saved by faith. Okay, Abraham exists before the law was written down. So his salvation is not through keeping the works of the law. His salvation is because he trusted God. All right, And it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, that's a freebie. Now let's get the real sermon. Well, I guess I have to do the reading. All right, our second reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 2. I will read verses 15 through 21. I'm again using the ERV version, the easy to read version. I hope no one is insulted uh, by this version. It is written for third graders. But I find that we old people end up understanding it better if, if we listen to it the way you tell it to a third grader. Okay, We'll have to make a couple of uh, translation points as we go on in the sermon, but hear the word of God. We are Jews by birth. This is Paul speaking to the church at Galatia. He's talking about himself. We were not born sinners, as we call those who are not Jews. But we know that no one is made right with God by following the law. It is trusting in Jesus Christ that makes a person right with God. So we have put our faith in Christ Jesus because we, this is Paul, each of these we's is Paul, because we wanted to be made right with God. And we are right with him because we trusted in Christ, not because we followed the law, I say this because no one can be made right with God by following the law. We Jews came to Christ to be made right with God, so it is clear that we were sinners too. Does this mean that Christ makes us sinners? Of course not. But I would be wrong to begin teaching again those things that I gave up. It was the law itself that caused me to end my life under the law. I died to the law so that I could live for God. I have been nailed to the cross with Christ. So I am not the one living now. It is Christ living in me. I still live in my body, but I live by faith in the Son of God. He is the one who loved me and gave himself to save me. I am not the one destroying the meaning of God's grace. If following the law 
is how people are made right with God, then Christ did not have to die. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this collection of saints who are here this morning. We thank you that you have gathered us from many places and from many backgrounds and that you've gathered us here in this room to be one people. We are one because we are yours uh, in faith. This day as we gather around your communion table, we pray as well that we might truly feel united one to another even as we are united to Christ. Lord, in the proclamation of your word this morning as we dig into what it is that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we ask that uh, you would be present here, that you would open our ears and soften our hearts, give us the capacity to receive and to believe and to act on what your word says. Lord, we cannot do these things alone, and so we ask for your help. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The title of this sermon is, What Happens When We Avoid Christ? What happens when we avoid Christ? Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the church. What happens when we avoid Him? Sometimes people think of Jesus as a nice guy. But the impression that I get of Him was that He could be rather harsh. He could say really tough and biting things. And one group of people that Jesus really had it out for were the Pharisees. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls the Pharisees snakes. He calls them blind men leading other blind men. He calls them hypocrites. He says that they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says they are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead bones and filth. In fact, he says that they are so bad that they belong in hell. I know quite a number of Pharisees eventually did become followers of Jesus, however. The Bible names three, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the Apostle Paul. Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus by night because he didn't want his Pharisee friends to see that he was speaking with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, That night, that if he, Nicodemus, wants to see the kingdom of God, that he's going to have to be born again. Of course, what is true of Nicodemus is also true of us. So let me just say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. No one who has been only born once gets to see the kingdom of God. And we know the name Joseph of Arimathea because he was the man who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion and then laid him in his own tomb. The tomb that Jesus laid in was a borrowed tomb. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Apparently he he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the religious council there in Jerusalem. 
and he was a follower of Jesus, apparently secretly at first, but then he comes out of the closet. And then, of course, there is Paul. Paul, in some sense, is the super Pharisee. In Acts 26.5, we have the scene of uh, Paul is, uh, is on trial, and he's before uh, King Agrippa. And he's talking uh, about who he is. King Agrippa, by the way, uh, was familiar with Jewish law. He was familiar with Jewish culture. And so Paul was particularly happy to be in front of this man. And Paul says to King Agrippa, these Jews, the ones who are accusing him, these Jews have known me for a long time. If they want to, they can tell you I was a good Pharisee. All right, so there are Pharisees, and then there are good Pharisees, and the Pharisees obey the law of the Jewish religion more carefully than any other group. End of the quote. So if you want to be a Jew, I mean, I think this is the kind of Jew that you want to be. The Pharisees were the serious Jews. They were really studying the Word of God. They were trying to do it the right way. So why is Jesus, who is a Jew, and who is the Messiah that's been promised in the Jewish religion, why is it that Jesus has such harsh things to say about these poor Pharisees? These people who spend a lot of time studying the Bible, these people who are very careful about following God's law, why does Jesus think that these people are not heading to the kingdom of heaven? I'll give you a clue. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. Okay? So what happens when we avoid Jesus? Well, there are a couple of options. If we avoid Jesus, but still live really good lives working really hard to keep God's law, then we will be snakes. We'll be blind men leading blind men. We will be hypocrites and we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. We will be like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead bones and filth. In fact, we will be so bad, even as we work at being good, we will be so bad that we belong in hell. That's what happens when we avoid Jesus. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Galatians, writes this. Irreligious people, unreligious people, irreligious people do not repent at all. Religious people repent for their sins. But Christians repent for their righteousness. That's what makes them Christians when they repent not just for being bad, but for having tried so many ways to be good in order to avoid relying on Christ. Alright? Now this might sound a little strange, but I hope before this sermon is over, Tim Keller's quote will make sense to you. Irreligious people, non-religious people, they don't repent of anything. But 
because, you know, for them there is no God and there's no universal eternal law given by God that they might be judged by. And so there's no reason to repent. That makes sense. Religious people, like the Pharisees, certainly believe in God. They believe in God's law. And when they break that law, they repent of their sins. That's for sure. But Keller says about Christians that they repent not of their sins, but of their righteousness. They repent of having tried so many ways to be good in order to avoid relying on Christ. You see, the religious person, the Pharisee, depends not on Christ, but on their own ability and hard work to keep the law. I keep the law as best as I can. And when I occasionally mess up, well, there are these sacrifices that I do. And offering the sacrifices is part of the law. And when I do all of that, then I'm righteous. I'm justified before God. And God has to accept me. He has to love me. And He has to bless me. For the religious person, for the Pharisee, there is no need for Christ. There's no need for a Savior. The religious person believes that they have what they need to be justified before God. They believe they can do it themselves, and God doesn't need to butt into this thing. And that, according to Keller, is the attitude that Christians will repent of. To be a Christian is not only to repent of our sins, but also to repent of our righteousness of our attempts to be self-sufficient or independent of God. Why would anyone want to be a Pharisee instead of a Christian? Well, because Pharisees are competent. Because Pharisees are responsible. Because Pharisees are mature people who have things under control and aren't looking for someone to bail them out every time something goes wrong. The Christian, on the other hand, is a blubbering, helpless idiot. Like Peter, who when he tries to walk on the water, starts to sink and he cries out in panic, Lord, save me! How many of you, raise your hand, like asking for help? Good for you. Okay. If you want to be a Christian... You gotta get used to asking for help. I read somewhere that when people are at the beach and they get into trouble in the water and the lifeguards have to go out and, you know, bring them back in, those people who were brought back in often are angry with the lifeguards. I knew what I was doing. It wasn't as bad as it looked. I could have made it into the shore. It's embarrassing to be rescued. But if Jesus is your Savior, then you've been rescued. You've gotten yourself into a situation that you cannot get yourself out of. You've gotten yourself into a situation that will be the death of you. And you cried out, Lord, save me. It's actually more fun to be a Pharisee.
This is why it's not possible to be a proud Christian. Because if you say that you're a Christian, you're saying, you know, I'm such a big loser that God had to send a special rescue mission just to get me straightened out. Okay? It's not a place of pride. For the Pharisee, it is a place of pride because they are very good. They're very good at what they do and they've got reason to be proud of themselves. Let me say one more thing about being saved by Jesus before we turn to our passage from Galatians. If uh, in your life you have come to that humbling moment when you realize that all of your best efforts and all of your own righteousness are not going to do the trick, if you have had that come to Jesus moment and cried out while under the conviction of the Holy Spirit regarding your sins, if, if you've cried out, Lord, save me, then you have been born again. Okay, thanks be to God. Right? Some of you have had that experience. There come, came a moment. Like, it all kind, all the pieces came together. It doesn't happen at first. You know, you, you hear your first sermon, you hear your second sermon, you hear your hundredth sermon. At some point, all the pieces begin to fall together. For me, it was in the fourth grade. I mean, I was raised in the church. I was in church every Sunday of my life. Even in utero, I was in church being preached at. So I had heard this thing. I don't know how, you can do the math. How many, how many Sundays had I heard the gospel before I was in the fourth grade, which seems kind of late, but in the fourth grade, I finally woke up and I was like, whoa, I've got a problem. I'm on my way to hell. Save me. All right? Some of you have had that experience, and thanks be to God for that experience. If you haven't had that experience, it'll happen to you. Alright? Stick around. If you, have, if you have had that experience, here's what I want to, you to keep in mind. I'm talking to the Christians, to the born-again Christians now. For those of you who are born-again Christians, I want you to know that the rest of your Christian life, until the day that you die, until the day Jesus returns, the rest of your Christian life will be doing the very same thing that made you a Christian in the first place. For the rest of your life, you're going to be crying out to Jesus and saying, save me. That first moment, the moment of our conversion, the theological term is justification. Okay? In that moment, we are justified. In our reading from Galatians this morning, this word is going to be translated for us, being made right. In that moment of justification, in that moment when we are born again, all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins are transferred to Jesus. They're nailed to the cross, right? Woo! They all go to, they, they go to the cross. Okay, what was that hymn that we just sang a moment ago? The, the theology in that first, one of the hymns that we sang was absolutely this case, where... And can it be, right? We're nailed to the cross, and then the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. There's a transfer that happens here, okay? Your garbage goes to Christ. I'm sorry, but that was the only way to do it. It goes to Christ, but the perfect robes of His righteousness become yours by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what happens in the moment of justification. That's the technical term for it, okay? So, in that moment... Uh, you receive the full righteousness of Christ. When God sees you on the day of judgment, He is going to see that you've been united to Christ, and He will see you as 
perfect. He's not going to see any sin. He's going to he's going to see perfect. You're a perfect person. All right? That's what happens in the moment of your conversion when you're born again. And guess what? Nothing can change that. Right? Once you've been justified, you can't be unjustified. Jesus says that no one can snatch us from his hand once the Father has given us to Jesus. All right? In the moment of justification, we belong to Christ. He purchased us with his own blood. All right? And it's the Father who gives, who gives us to Christ. And in that moment, but then Jesus says that no one is going to take you out of my hand. All right? So if you've been saved, there's no way to be unsaved. I'm sorry to tell you. Okay? You're stuck with it. Once you're in the hands of Christ, nothing can take us out of the hands of Christ, not even our own stupidity or our own sinful nature. Once we've been justified, however, we do enter a lifelong battle, a war with sin in our lives. It is a lifelong process of increasing sanctification. We begin little by little to live more and more the way God wants us to live. And the way that happens, the way sanctification happens, is precisely the same way as justification happens. We run to Christ and say, help me. Help! Help! I can't do this. I can't deal with this temptation. Save me from these fleshly desires. Save me. Rescue me from this attitude in my heart. Until we see Jesus in person, we will be saddled with this old flesh which continues to try to throw itself back into the water where it's going to drown. Okay? It's it just, it just the reality. Alright, let's talk about the Galatians passage. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. It's a church that he's planted. It's a mixed church. Some of the people are Jews. Some of the people are, well, former, well, they're converted Jews. And some of the people are converted pagans. They used to be pagans, but now, now they're Christians. These people all had heard the simple gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It was crucified for the sins of the church. Right? And by accepting that message in faith, these people, both former Jews and former pagans, were born again. They had become Christians. They were now followers of Christ. They had been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And they were on their way to eternal life. But some people had crept into this church and were teaching something new. They were teaching that, you know, in addition to faith in Jesus, here are some other things that you need to do if you're going to be right with God. Faith is all well and good, but in addition to faith in Jesus... Here are some standards that you need to meet if you're going to be right with God. Now, I'm using the easy-to-read version. And seven times in the passage that we read this morning, Paul talks about being made right with God. Being made right with God. This is the more traditional translations are going to use the word justified there. 
Okay, being made right with God. Let's listen to verse 16 again. If you want to, you can open your bulletins and have that there in front of you so that you can see with your eye and also hear with your ear. We know that no one is made right with God by following the law. How many people are made right with God by following the law? Zero. None. Nobody. Nobody is made right with God by following the law. It is trusting in Jesus that makes a person right with God. What percentage of people who are right with God have trusted in Jesus? 100%. So we have put our faith in Christ Jesus because we wanted to be made right with God, and we are right with Him because we trusted in Christ, not because we followed the law. I can say this because no one can be made right with God by following the law. Now the first thing we need to recognize here is that if we are made right with God, it's because something was wrong with God before. All right? We're made right to change our circumstance. We were somehow wrong with God, something was off with God, and then we need to be made right with God. The law of God is what reveals to us what is wrong about us. Okay? The law of God is very useful. It's a mirror that we hold up to our lives. And we look in the law of God and we say, hey, oh, I'm not living that way. The law of God is like a diagnostic test. And what it tells us, if we read the results honestly, is it tells us we have cancer. Right? We sin because we're sinners. It is our nature. It's in us. The good news of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be made right with God. We can be justified. But before we get to that good news, we have to receive the bad news, namely that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the part of the gospel people don't want to hear. The diagnosis of our sinful condition is the bad news part of the good news. The bad news of the gospel is we have cancer. The good news of the gospel is that if we come to Jesus, the cancer will be cured. Earlier this year, I got a nasty gram from the IRS. They said, thanks for filling your taxes out, but you still owe us a whole lot of money. I had tried to follow the law, but you know, that law is very tricky, and I was found wanting. And so I started to pay the U.S. Treasury what I owed, and yes, I did pay more in taxes last year than certain well-known presidential candidates. And last month, I mailed in one final fact check to the IRS, the final payment of what I owed, and when that check cleared, I was made right with the IRS. I had paid my debt. I no longer had hanging over me the threat of penalty and punishment that the mighty U.S. government could inflict upon me. It feels good to not have that hanging over your head. Well, what about the debt that I owe the sin in my life. 
The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Oh man, how am I going to pay that? How am I going to get right with God if the payment for my sin is my, my, my very lifeblood? Well, there are two options. I can pay the debt myself by being damned. By being eternally separated from God in the miseries of hell. I can, I can pay for my debt with my own death. That's one option. Not a very good option, but it is an option. The other option uh, is by faith in Jesus Christ. I can receive the death of Christ as the payment for my sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, that's the other half of the good news, right? In that one verse we have both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. False teachers had come into the church at Galatia saying that these people needed to add to their faith works of the law. They said that they could not be made right with God until they added works to their faith. And Paul answers, no one is made right with God by following the law. Why? Because even if we wanted to follow God's law, we would fail. Only one person ever kept God's law, and that was Jesus. So if we try to make ourselves right by right with God by redoubling our effort to follow the law, we're just out of luck. Remember what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus offers an exposition of the law, and he actually makes the law stricter, harder. Jesus makes following the law not simply a matter of our external behavior, but also of our internal thoughts and attitudes. Jesus says that if we're angry with our brother or call him a fool, that, that we're murderers. Well, I mean, who hasn't been angry with their brother or called someone a fool? Paul says that no one can be made right with God by following the law. And keep in mind that Paul was a Pharisee. He had spent many years trying really hard to be right with God by keeping the law. Because as long as he was right with God by keeping the law, he didn't need a Savior. As long as he was right with God by keeping the law, he avoided the humbling experience of having to cry out, Lord, save me. I can't save myself. Whether we realize it or not, all of us are desperately dependent on God. I love that hymn, I need thee every hour. We are absolutely dependent on God in each moment, whether we realize it or not. And having a relationship with God means that we recognize our dependence on God. We only come to Christ as needy, dependent people who are in search of salvation. We avoid Christ... Because we want to avoid being dependent. But all of creation is dependent on God. And so the desire to not be dependent is really a desire to be God ourselves. We avoid Christ because we want to be God. Why do people avoid Christ? 
Because they don't want to say that they need Him. Because they want to be good enough in their own effort. Because they want to be God in some kind of odd way. You and I have a choice to make. We could work really hard following all of the rules, being more religious than other people. And if we do, then Jesus will say to us, you know, you're a snake. You're a blind person. You're a whitewashed tomb. That's one option. The other option is, is that we can recognize the reality of our situation, that we cannot save ourselves by our own efforts, that we are dependent on God, even uh, for our righteousness, and then we can call out to Jesus and say, Save me. Now here's the good news. He saves those who call on him. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. Pray that you would seal to our hearts the truths of your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray.